All of these are necessary and you don't get better than the weakest link, which has a huge implication to how you make decisions when you have to make them quickly. What you wanna do is quickly kind of say, of those six things, where's my weakest link right now? If I were forced to make a decision right now, mm-hmm. what would I do? And what, what of these six things is the weakest link? Let me put my effort there to improve it. Yeah. Okay, that, that helps you get it better. Hi, Michelle Florendo here, and welcome to Ask a Decision Engineer. Listen in and find out how to untangle big decisions with less stress and more clarity. If you've listened to past seasons of the podcast, you already know that in the face of uncertainties you cannot control, the path forward is to focus on making the best decision you can. But how can you know you've made a good decision before you know how things turn out? To talk about that, I invited award-winning decision quality expert, Carl Spetzler, onto today's show. Carl is the co-founder and chairman of Strategic Decisions Group, a leading strategy consulting firm renowned for its expertise in strategic decision-making for greater value creation. He also literally wrote the book on decision quality, along with his colleagues, Hannah Winter and Jennifer Meyer. Today, we talk about how the concept of decision quality has helped companies make better decisions when millions and billions of dollars are on the line. How you can employ the six links of decision quality to be confident you are making a good decision, as well as other tips for making better decisions. Enjoy the episode. Carl, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. My pleasure. Thank you. Yes. I mean, I'm super excited to have you here because when I tell people that I studied decision engineering at Stanford, so many people are surprised that there's an entire field dedicated to helping people and organizations make better decisions. And so I always like to point out that there are people who have been doing this for decades And so I'm excited to have you here and share some of your expertise just in the work that you've been doing with my audience. And so to start, for people who aren't familiar with you yet, can you go ahead and just share a bit about the work that you've been doing over the past decades? Well, it's been like almost 50 years. I fell into this field when it was just starting in the 1960s. In those days, engineering economics was still a big field, okay? Since you call it decision engineering, it kind of fits with that. And I asked my professor when I was in graduate school, how come they don't include uncertainty in their thinking in engineering economics? It's all this time value of money and and complexity and so on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that would make a good dissertation. And so... That led me into this field. So wait, at that point in time, they hadn't yet been factoring uncertainty into you. It it was emerging. This was about the same time as Ron Howard moved to Stanford and Howard Rafa was teaching his courses in the business school on, on applying basically decision science and decision trees to business cases. And so it was at the early stage. Mm -hmm. 
until then, the field was really a philosophy. It was part of philosophy of how should people make decisions in the face of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a, a matter of understanding this. And great mathematicians and philosophers and scientists have been working that for 250 years. But it was not considered a practical capability because mm -hmm. it, decisions were too complex and the, everybody that tries to apply these ideas very quickly uh, learns that you draw a decision tree and the branches keep expanding and pretty soon they're off the page and you <laughs> see this doesn't work and then they crumble up the paper and go back to their old methods. Mm -hmm. So part of it was with this field of decision engineering it was really bringing the engineering to the decision science mm -hmm. that Ron Howard and Howard Rafa kind of turned it into a practical field. Why shouldn't we really make decisions with these foundations in place? Okay, and that's the, the whole normative decision science mm -hmm. that has grown out of that. That's been my field for the last 50 years. And I joined the Stanford School in 68, it was at SRI at that time, and later we had all kinds of spin-offs. The biggest one was Strategic Decisions Group that had various of these founders as partners with me, and we that's still going today. Okay, yeah. so it's and it's we've created a society of decision professional. It's a whole field, okay, mm -hmm. and it's a field of how do you help someone make a decision in the face of uncertainty and in the face of the kind of complexities that we face? Right. Uh, most of the, the stuff, it's universal. It works on everything. You, you can make the, the, you have the best and highest value contribution when you do it in consulting on big decisions where people spend a billion dollars and want to <laughs> get it right and understand risk and uncertainty, and they can pay for somebody developing a decision tree and models with 10,000 branches. Yeah. Well, uh, so wait, for a little bit of context, though, can you share more just so that the people who are listening, as you're talking about these big decisions that organizations are yeah. weighing, can give examples just so that they know where some of this so, has been? So some of the biggest applications tend to be very capital intensive industries, mining, oil and gas, where people have to plop uh, multiple billions of dollars a mile under the ocean with oil price uncertainty. And, if, and it's, it's not a good investment if it doesn't last at least 20 years. Mm -hmm. But we know how uncertain oil prices and how uncertain right. the geology and technology. And so, so when you look at all that and you try to figure out what's the risk and return profile mm -hmm. of alternatives to be able to choose the one that gives you the best chance of getting some profitability out of this investment, that's where I, the biggest applications have been. And the biggest adoptions at what we call organizational decision quality, where people make it a way of life in their organizations. And uh, Michelle, you probably have heard of the Rafa Howard Award that's mm -hmm. gone various kinds of corporations that have deeply embedded these practices in their way of making all the decisions. Pharmaceutical companies are another big, big investments that are on the line. 
it, it, it costs you a billion dollars to get a, a, a drug to market with all the different and lots of uncertainties and you have to sort out and get the whisper return. Mm -hmm. But you know what's really interesting, it's just as exciting to uh, work with kids that are in high school where they can learn these principles and apply them to everyday decisions. Right, because decision-making in the face of uncertainty is something that everyone has to do, not just big corporations. And decision-making, uh, there are two sides to this. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have started an organizational 20 years called Decision Education Foundation, and we try to bring it to high school youths or pre-high school youths. And there, there are two pieces to this. One is teaching them decision skills. Mm. The other is when the kids that are in rebellion, that are basically feeling victim of adults telling them everything what to do and what, don't know how to react except to kind of push back, <laughs> suddenly they get a course. We do it usually as a camp of a week. And they're getting taught decisions when they're going to high school. And so suddenly they turn around and says, oh, my God, I have decisions to make. And they go from that victim mm -hmm. rebellion state to basically becoming active owners of their decisions. Yeah. And that shift of owning your decisions and feeling intentionality and agency. And also capable because you're equipping them with the tools to be able to do that well. It goes together. It's mm -hmm. kind of like. They, they were afraid of decisions, they, and, and on top of it, adults were running their lives, maybe against their will, but maybe together. It's, we had this wonderful email that where she wrote, uh, thank you for teaching my son to make uh, decision quality, and he's already come home and used it against me. <laughs> I normally would have said no to what he was proposing. And he sat me down and showed me how this decision had decision quality. And reluctantly, I had to agree. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. With a smiley face, she said, thank you so much. I wasn't sure where that note was going with the whole, and he used it against me. But I love that there's a happy <laughs> ending here. <laughs> we read that email to kids and say, look, you want freedom? This is how you get your freedom. You show your parents or the adults in your life that you can make good decisions and they'll give you freedoms. And you read it to the parents and you say, hey, what do you want most for your kids at that age? For them to make good decisions. <laughs> Help them and teach them to make good decisions. It's a very universal thing that is not being brought into life enough. Yeah. And so you've talked about how, uh, how your work has spanned you know, supporting organizations, making huge investments to make good decisions all the way to young people. But I think it's worth just double clicking into what does it mean to make a good decision? Like what are some of the things that people get right or wrong about decision quality? Again, two parts to this. One is getting a decision right at the time you make it. Right? Mm. Doesn't help with hindsight. Hindsight is the, the, the luxury of observers, not of decision makers. Mm. Oh, I'm going to put that on a quote card. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to have a, a good decision at the time you make it, it has to meet six requirements. Mm. They're pretty straightforward. You've got to make the decision that you should be making. Okay, it's, it's, there's the frame, what, what should we be doing? 
and frames and getting the frame right and saying what are the what's what's in this decision what's not is not easy and and to maybe let me illustrate that because yeah. that's probably the most difficult concept the other ones are pretty easy i tell the story where my wife came to me once and she said you know it's time to paint and recarpet the house and i said well looks right to me but you know in 6 months we're going to be empty nesters and we have this playroom that we don't need and you have this tiny kitchen we could do a little remodeling and you could have the kitchen that you might like to really have hmm. she kind of smiled and then she thought about the bedroom area and then we hired an architect and this project grew and then it got so expensive that we said should we be in the same house or should we go to another house and then the next question so how long should we be here and in in this area and how long are you going to work with stanford and what are you going to do here and pretty soon it was a question of, so what are we going to do with the rest of our lives mm-hmm. okay they're all connected mm-hmm. what decision you want to make what is the frame that you should choose that's a practical frame now i think that's now. important what's practical for now cuz i can see so many people going down the bigger, 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 bigger frame. And Michelle, I tell that story to audiences and I say, well, how many would say, let's just decide on color of paint and carpet, okay? Mm-hmm. And, that's, and oh, maybe 10% of the hands go up. How many people would say we should start at the top and saying, okay, what, what, what do we want to do with the rest of our lives? Another 10% of the hands go up. But where in between, okay, mm-hmm. what's right decision we should be making now. That framing question is is one of the most important and powerful ones. People fall into two narrow frames Mm -hmm. or they make their frame so big they have to boil the ocean. Mm -hmm. And and picking a frame that's the appropriate frame for what you need to decide now is one of the key things. So because if you're not getting the frame right, you're not solving the right problem. Okay. That in the frame, you got to make sure you have significantly different alternatives. That requires a creativity and expansive thinking and out of the box. And you don't want to just uh, take what's in front of you. Right. So but, often I hear people just fall into the binary, do I do this or not? And a better alternative often beats all the analysis you can do. Your choice doesn't get better than the best alternative. Mm-hmm. So, so putting some effort into really getting the alternatives and making sure that at the time you make a decision, I was looking at the right alternatives. You got to have confidence. In that. Then, then you got to have clarity about what you truly want. Mm-hmm. It turns out that's not easy either. Okay? <laughs> There's a wonderful book on stumbling on happiness. If you haven't read that, I really suggest it. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, it's a surprise to people that they cannot imagine how they will feel in the future. So if someone said you would lose your eyesight, a year later, you will be back to your happiness set point that you are now. Mm-hmm. That'd be hard to believe. That's the actual experience of people. Mm-hmm. People, once they accept their, their true situation, and if they have the, the inner wherewithal for a certain level of happiness, they get back to their set point. And 
we can't imagine what we what the outcomes are and putting values on them very easily. So getting it right about what do we truly want, and then we can talk with the alternatives. How mm -hmm. much do each do we get? That's the really the, the next element, which is we have to have the information that allows us to predict the consequences in such a way for in face of uncertainty and everything that we can go and apply what we truly want so we can compare the alternatives. So wait, I wanted to just summarize for those who are listening so far, you've already talked through frame, frame being frame. one of the biggest things. Frame, then alternatives, mm -hmm. values, information, okay? okay? What we know about the future and what we can guess about the future, which includes all the past data. Data, we only have about the past. There are no facts from the future yet. Right? <laughs> as much as people would want to have that though. Yeah. <laughs> And often, if things don't change, the past is a good, you know, prelude to the future. But if things change, the future is uncertain. So we have to guess at what could be, and that's a matter of describing the future with possibilities and probabilities. What could happen and how likely is it? And then we apply to that how much we care about those kinds of consequences. That's the values. And to doing that, putting those three things, the alternatives, the values, and information together is what we call sound reasoning. Okay, mm. So you get to find that alternative that gives you the most of what you truly want in light of everything you know about the future or can figure out about the future. And that's sound reasoning. That gives us the five things. If we have those five things right, frame, <laughs> values, information, and sound reasoning, we get to clarity, okay? We know what, what we should do. There's another big deal between should and doing, okay? <laughs> the the knowing-doing gap. <laughs> we call commitment to action, okay? Mm. That commitment to action for humans, especially in your coaching world, is often not just a matter of head, but it's a matter of shifting to, to action, to, to, to warrior, to, to doing, okay? Mm -hmm. People often talk about the, having the courage to make a decision. And I always thought, what, what do they mean courage? Once you get clear about what you want, isn't it obvious? Well, I'll give you another story. Mm -hmm. Ernesto was in a class that was a two-week class that we gave to youth. They were mostly teenagers. He was one of the more senior teenagers, probably 17, 18. And he'd been working for uh, this time. We ask everybody to work on a personal decision project while we teach them these ideas, mm. okay? And he's working on this over a second week, Thursday. We're now getting the commitment to action, okay? We, we put a piece of tape on the floor. We say on this side, you're, it's before you've learned all about when you step across, it's done. It, you're just moving with it. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so Ernesto has been working on this problem and it was about whether or not he should take the first step with his father. His fa he lived in his parents' home, but had not spoken with his father for 18 months. It was a cold, icy power struggle. Mm. Okay. And he'd come to the conclusion he should take the first step. So he goes on Thursday, 
three o'clock in the afternoon up to that line and he stands there and he stands there and finally shakes his head and he says, I just can't do it. And he walks out of the room. And everybody, you know, everybody been together now for almost two weeks. I mean, we really felt a team and, and it was, you know, that's it, but we have to deal with it. Well, Friday morning comes and he's there right on time. He's all white. He hasn't slept at all that night. And he walks up to that line and without hesitation, he steps across. Hmm. What changed? That night, the difference is the courage. It's not just head. Mm. You can be clear about what you should do. Right. It's another thing to then transfer it into that. And that's, that's what I think people mean when they say you have to have courage to, to act. Yeah. And, and so that's the last element. Mm -hmm. You don't have a, a decision unless it is a true commitment to action. Right. Because if you're not going to act on it, nothing it's different not, happens. It's not a decision. So, mm -hmm. so those are the six requirements. And those six requirements uh, are necessary for all good to, to have a good decision. And they become sufficient if they're strong. We draw them as a chain. Mm. Because it's the they're weakest. Interrelated too. Interrelated, and it's the weakest link that defines the overall quality. So if oh. you just everything's good, but you have a bad frame, okay? Mm. You saw the wrong. That won't do it. Okay. Everything's good except you don't have good alternatives defined. Mm -hmm. That don't work. Everything's good except you. When you really get what you thought you wanted, you didn't want it at all. You hadn't really explored what you truly want. Okay. Yeah. You're chasing the wrong thing, okay, or something. Everything's good except you have some false information and assumptions about the future, and you drop, made a mistake. Or everything's good and you made some reasoning mistakes. All of these are necessary, and you don't get better than the weakest link, which has a huge implication to how you make decisions when you have to make them quickly. What you want to do is quickly kind of say, of those six things, where's my weakest link right now? If I were forced to make a decision right now, mm -hmm. what would I do? And what, what of these six things is the weakest link? Let me put my effort there to improve it. Yeah. Okay. That, that helps you get it better. I imagine that there's also a level of self-awareness that plays into this where, because as I think about my listeners and how they might put this framework in action, if they can also just notice as they're making decisions, where is it that they're gravitating towards spending energy versus where haven't they? Yes. And teaching people those six things. Okay. The kids use their, their hand and they use the thumb for the frame, frame values, alternatives, information, reasoning, and then they use their fist for action. Okay. <laughs> but by you want to get, I'd like to get everyone to the point where they can have that as their checklist and mm -hmm. saying, okay, in this decision situation, do I have the frame right? Okay. Just be able to go through that checklist. Yeah. And that's, that's the key to getting to knowing you've made a good decision at the, making a good decision at the time you make it. Okay. Mm -hmm. How you get there can be quick, 
can be circular, can be, there are many ways to get to having strong links in the six requirements. But at the end of the day, if you can see that they've been present, no matter what order or how you came to them, that's a way you can know you've made a good decision. But but use that as a checklist. And then, uh, Michelle, the only other really big thing is making sure you have the right decision agenda in the first place. Tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? making sure you're focusing on the decisions you should be making. Mm, mm, yes, because I what often is, get the question from people, what do I do if I'm what, I'm worrying about what's for dinner and all of the, and they, they're experiencing yes, decision fatigue. What, <laughs> yes, what decisions should I be focusing on? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I think that getting what we call developing your decision agenda mm. and saying, what, what do I need? What, uh, Michelle, what do you need to decide in the next six months? What are the important decisions facing you? And you may be coming up and saying, hey, right now, I don't need to do anything big to change. I just need to execute a lot. Mm-hmm. You're, you're on the right track. You don't, okay. Now, life still might throw you some situations. That uh, So it's not j- you don't want to be just reactive with your decisions. You want to think about what else could we do? Mm-hmm. The, the lost opportunities for making choices are some of our biggest losses in life. Yeah. Okay? And, and it's true in business and it's true in personal right. life. Because oftentimes there's more, there's more regret about the things that we didn't do or take the opportunity to do versus the ones that we did. Yeah. You know what, I, I wanted to go back to something that you said about that commitment to action and the story you told about Ernesto and how, yes, crossing, crossing that line can be so terrifying, I think, because once, once you're clear on what the decision is and you move to action, yes. then you're not in control of the outcome. Right. And so, like, what would you say to the people who are afraid of bad outcomes? Well, uh, let me say, most people prefer, uh, I I draw kind of a a line, and I say, here's the point of commitment where you cross that line. When you're on the other side, you're clear and you're in action mode. Mm -hmm. Most people like to be on the other side of the line and having clarity about where they're going and acting. That decision by nature, creates some cognitive dissonance. If you haven't decided yet, you must hold multiple alternatives in your head and compare them. Mm. People have trouble having multiple, especially if they're directions that are very inconsistent. You know, it's either we go on vacation to this wonderful place, or we spend two weeks building houses for poor people in Mexico. And, and you say, well, what are we going to do with our two weeks that we have this year off, okay? Mm-hmm. And these two different, seem so different, but they may be in value to you almost equal. Mm-hmm. And so it may be a difficult choice. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're going on a vacation. My wife, she wants clarity. What's going to happen? She wants the decisions made. Once the decisions are made, she's much more at ease. Before the decisions are made, we're still talking about all these possibilities, mm-hmm. okay? And that possibility stage for some people is comfortable 
it depends on personality type more. Yeah. Okay? Mm -hmm. and, and others have a very strong preference to having things decided and clear and organized in their lives. Okay. Right. But people have a preference which side to, of that commitment to be on. And some many, many jump to the commitment to clarity and action long before they get to decision quality, simply because it, it's, it's clear. It's clear they don't have to deal with the discomfort or the tension. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I'm, I'm glad that you're pointing out that different, different people, different personalities approach this process in different ways and they have different reactions too, because I think yeah. listeners may hear themselves in some of the things that you're describing. And some of these, you know, stepping across the line to commitment to action may be scary and some are easy. If I just knew what to do, hmm. clearly I would do, I have no trouble doing it kind of in some places and other places it's different. I, I like to jump in the cold water after, after taking a hot tub in the winter, okay? When our hot tub is right up by the pool. Oh, the cold plunge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if I step up on the hot tub and then stand there and decide whether to go in. It's a very hard decision to make. <laughs> if I am still in the hot tub and I've got this complete made up my mind, I'm, I don't even hesitate, then it's easy to jump. Mm. The, the, so it's, it's this commitment, whether you get, whether, how you get to it and when you, when you make it, once you've got it, it it's, just different and easier, okay? Yeah. But it shifts from a mental frame to a body in motion, okay? Yes. It's a different energy, completely mm -hmm. energy that's required. And I think that's a good point because I hear from a lot of people who, who get stuck in just the analysis paralysis. And there's, I think there's something there when you said that the energy required to commit to action and commit to crossing that line really is... It's an embodied thing. Yeah. It's not just from right here. And it's not, and after that execution, okay, mm -hmm. is much more of an action driving force, okay? It's yeah. a full movement. So it, it's from a different part of the uh, energy. You know, when Ron Howard talks about thinking for action, this is what really decision making is. Mm. It's for the purpose of action. Right. Okay? It's not just thinking for thinking. I see it as almost creating change in the world because I think going back to what you said about sometimes we regret the things that we didn't do or we regret the decisions we didn't take more than the opportunities we did. It just reminds me of, I mean, I'm passionate about this space because decision-making inherently is empowering. And there's just so, I encounter a lot of people who just have angst around like, how do I make a good decision that it keeps them from stepping into that power? Yeah. The sense of empowerment is so huge. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's <laughs> tell you another story. Yeah. Uh, my, I was a kind of a fundraiser event. I forgot for what it was for, but a young man comes up to me and he says, Mr. Spetzler, you probably don't remember me, but and I didn't, uh, but you changed my life. Mm, tell me more, okay? <laughs> well, I was in this classes where you uh, taught us decision skills before we went on this Himalayan track. 
and very, made very bad decisions before that. And I decided to make good decisions and it completely changed my life. And I said, well, how long ago was that? And he said, four years ago, and, you know, I'm now in college, I'm doing this and this. And I, and I said, well, you know, we just call that growing up. <laughs> and he looks at me and he's a guy and he pokes his finger at my chest. You just don't get it. This is what, okay. It, it was like, this was the thing that turned him in. It was the idea that he owned his decisions and he could make them well. Mm -hmm. that it's like, and, and that's that empowerment. It's very empowering. Mm -hmm. If we, if you, if you own your decisions, then you're not a victim. And I think it's also that piece about being able to make it well, because what I love about the, the six lengths of decision quality is that it provides people with a way that they can check to see, am I making a good decision here in this moment without even yeah. knowing what the outcome is? Because I find a lot of people, a lot of people think that, you know, their decision quality is actually the same as the quality of outcomes. I know you and I know that's not true, but that. That's a myth that I find I, I continually have to debunk for people. And it's highly reinforced by our news media. Mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. People say only time will tell whether this was a good decision. And, and you and I both know, actually, it would be no, useful to be able to say right now whether I made a good decision. <laughs> right. It's a good decision or it's not a good decision. Okay. Mm -hmm. I had uh, dinner with Ron the other night and he says, you know, I had to convince my uh, wife, uh, my second wife, that uh, it was a good decision for her to get married to this other guy and was a good decision for her to get divorced. And both of those were good decisions. That was very hard for her to get, given that the marriage didn't work out. Mm. Is that possible? Right? I mean, you when yes, it is. Yeah. You have when you're when you're making decisions, you're making them in the face of uncertainty. You have to make choices and understand possible consequences. And then you have other decisions to make that follow on. Right. And I think in, in this disentangling of quality of decisions from the quality of the outcomes. It's a good reminder that there's only so much that we can control. There are other yeah. parts that we can't, but you know, using this framework, we can go through and identify, okay, how can I make the most of these pieces that I can control? Exactly. Exactly. Maybe that's a good place to close on. Yeah. That's a very well said, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I am delighted to be part of this and wish you well in all of it. All right. Thank you. Well, thanks again, Carl. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you heard something today that you found helpful, please share this episode or write a review. Also, if you're interested in more resources on how to make decisions with less stress and more clarity, like my quick start guide for untangling big decisions or the decision-making courses I teach, Check out the show notes or go to askadecisionengineer.com to sign up for the mailing list. Be sure to check out the other episodes this season.
Next week, I'll be talking to Amy Day, Decision Educator and Executive Director of Clarity for Action, about whole person decision making and how adults can help young people cultivate decision skills. Again, this is Michelle Florendo from Ask a Decision Engineer. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.